Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Me. There, it's me, isn't it, Gary? Yeah, that's what happens. Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's really good to see you. It's good to be back. We had a great weekend. We had a great week with our family. We took some. I hope you're doing that. I hope you get some time with family and friends and just uh, time to recharge and, and get blessed. But we were at the coast with our family, and uh, we had our grandkids with us, and that, that's always a lot of fun. I have a, a little boy who's coming up who, who, who now knows how to say baseball. So I don't know where he learned that from. Don't know who's teaching him that stuff, but I like it. And so he sits with me and he watches baseball. But he, but he has this little thing that he does. He walks like he's inspecting the troops. He puts his hands, he's, he's about a foot tall. And he walks like this. And he just kind of walks around, you know, like he's checking you out. And uh, Annette and Becca were in the uh, living room and they were doing stretching exercises. They were kind of stretching and, and I was watching this happen. He walked in, you know, like he was inspecting everything. And they were, they can do it a lot better than I can do it, but they were stretching and, and he thought something was under the couch. So he just crawled up and he looked up under the couch to see what those girls were looking for. But no lost cookies or candy did he find. It was just, uh, it was all a ruse to him. But uh, it's, so, it's great to be here. I, I want to do a, a few things. One is in just a moment, we're going to share uh, communion together. And uh, I always look forward to these weekends. We share communion in this way where we come around the Lord's table together. And, uh, and, and we get to know a few things. We get to know the Lord uh, a little more. And we, we get to know each other a little more. And I, now that's why I enjoy it. And so we're going to take some time and do that. But before we do, let me give you a few announcements. We have a few announcements we want to bring to your attention. We have, and many of you know this, we've been doing uh, one evening every month. We're having a special prayer evening. And, uh, and we're going to be doing that in August, in fact, August 17th. But on this prayer time, this prayer evening, we're going to have special worship time from uh, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. We're going to have a special summer worship time where we're going to really focus on just worshiping the Lord. So if you want to come out and be part of that, you go ahead and do that. I think we're going to enjoy that, enjoy that together. There's more information in the bulletin. If you want to check there, you go ahead and do that. Coming up next weekend, we're going to have a farewell open house for Bruce and Marsha Mikowski. It's going to be Sunday evening, uh, August 15th, from 7 to 9 in the tent. And again, there's more information in the bulletin. That's why that bulletin is critical to know what's going on. I didn't even bring it up here, but Annette is reading it, so that's good. Thank you. And then uh, we have a bake sale uh, out in front, and that is to support our youth missions, Camp Agape. That is really a great outreach. Uh, For those that don't know about Camp Agape, it's a camp that we're able to sponsor. And these kids raise all the funding for this, uh, for, for 80, 100 kids to go to camp free. And many of them, for the first time, hear about Jesus Christ. And every year we, we have these you know, dozens of kids that receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And it makes a difference. It really does in their lives, in their family. And oftentimes we'll see families start coming and attending church once they've go, gone home and shared the good news about what Jesus has done in their life. So we want to help support that and sponsor that as, um, as much as we possibly can. So uh, if you get a chance to do that on the way out, there are tables out there. So find a little cookie or candy or bakes a good something. And I know what you're going to be doing. You'll be supporting a great cause. Uh, this last few weeks, we've been talking and teaching out of the book of Acts. And so we're going to continue to do that. I appreciate uh, Pastor Al's um, 
message last weekend. Um, I didn't get a chance to edit it all down, but I really wanted to work on it a little more. But he he did a fine job with the message. He didn't make it to chapter 6, so we're going to cover that at a different time. But chapter 6 is a great chapter because it talks about leadership and how conflict was resolved in the body of Christ. I mean, really, everything was going almost like, well, we've talked about it, like paradise, and then you run into a few bumps in the road and you have to deal with those problems. We have to do that in life. And in Acts chapter 6, that's where some of these problems are resolved. And I'm, I'm so, when I was reading this, I really was very appreciative of, of our leadership and, and the deacons, the elders, the people that God has put in place in leadership in our church. It really has been a blessing. And, and reading that chapter reminded me to continue uh, to pray for them. And I hope you do. Just, uh, just continue to pray for leadership in general in our lives. Those that are in our workplace, those that are in our church, our community. It reminds us that we need to do that. And when we do that, I know our lives are are blessed. And uh, so I want to thank everyone in leadership here, uh, all those that have uh, served the Lord well in this place. I really do uh, appreciate your hard work. Uh, in a few weeks, I'm excited to do this. In a few weeks, I'm going to be sharing with you, as I usually do the end of summer, beginning of fall, what the next year's theme is going to be. And it's always a prophetic time for us where the Lord gives us a theme, where he, he gives us some sort of direction that we can zero in on, we can focus on. And this next year is going to be no different. The Lord has, has spoken strongly to my heart, to Annette's heart, and several uh, of those that are here at, at our church about what... He's going to have us think about, focus on, teach on uh, coming in the year 2011. And I want to share that probably in three or four weeks. I don't want you to miss that. That's going to mean, I'll, I'll let you know when that's going to be, but it's going to be a, a good time. I, I think that what the Lord wants to say uh, is going to be uh, exciting for all of us, transformative for all of us. Well, tonight's message is really uh, entitled Mission Impossible. It's right on cue. Okay. There you go. How about that, huh? We played that before the sermon, before the message. Uh, and one, what, was, what, was, what did they say that was, your girls? That's ninja music. I said, in your day, is ninja music. In my day, it was James Phelps. So, but when we talk about what God has asked us to do, oftentimes it does seem like a mission impossible. And that's why the title even for us today has question marks. Is it really an impossible mission? It seems that way. God has asked us to do some things, and certainly the early church was asked to do some things that seemed to be impossible, but the Lord always came through. And uh, that's the exciting thing about serving God, is that when he asks you to do something, he'll always come through with the resources we need to make it happen. What we need to do is trust in him and lean on him. Let's do this. Let's pray together and ask the Lord just to bless our time in his word. Father, we want to thank you today. We want to thank you for the blessing of your Holy Spirit that you would just, uh, if you would just settle on our lives, settle on our hearts right now, open our hearts to be changed by the power of your word. We just thank you that you have given us a mission. And sometimes it does seem to be impossible. We, we don't know where the resources are going to come from. We don't even know how we're going to be equipped and what's going to happen in the future. But every single time you come through because you've made the promise and you have provided the power to fulfill that promise. In Jesus' name we pray and we say amen and amen. Would you do this? Would you open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 7? We're going to look at Acts chapter 7 
uh, beginning at verse 54, and we're going through verse 60. And the reason I'm doing it this way is because what we're going to read about here in these few verses is really a summary of what's already been taking place in Acts chapter 6 and 7. And uh, I'm going to fill you in on the rest of it. But let me begin uh, with verse 54. It says, when they heard these things, and this is the Pharisees and all the church religious people that Peter, or excuse me, that Stephen was preaching a message. When they heard these things, they were cut to their heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And then he cried and then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and they ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him and the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he had fallen asleep. Something very important takes place here in Acts chapter 7 that marks the beginning of a trend in the early church history. And it really continues to this very day. And that trend is persecution. And what we read here, what we witness here is the first martyr of the early church, the first martyr of the church altogether. And that's Stephen. And, and it's, a, it's an interesting thing because Stephen becomes the first Christian to meet his death for what he believes and what he preaches. And, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we meet Stephen in Acts chapter 6 when the leaders of the church choose him to be a deacon in the church. Now, I love the way that he's described. And you've got to listen to this, the way they describe the life, the quality, the characteristics of this person named Stephen. They say he's a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. I read that over and over several times this last week, and I thought, you know, this is the description that we should all want said about us. This is a description I'd want said about my life. I pray and hope it would be something you would want said about your life. And the great thing about this is it's not unreachable. It's not impossible. These are things that can be said about us when we follow Jesus Christ. When we are fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ, these are the testimonies that we can have. I think of the description here, a man full of faith. I have to stop and think about that. A man who believed in the promises of God, even though he didn't see all of it, even though it wasn't fulfilled during his life. He believed he had faith. He believed in what God said. And then it was a man. He says here he's a man full of the Holy Spirit. They brought those two together, faith and Holy Spirit. And I thought, why would they do that? Why? Why would that be so important to bring those two qualities together? And I think for me, it's so true that to have faith, really to have faith in the world we live in, you need to be full of the Holy Spirit. You need to have the power of the Holy Spirit to live out your faith. And I think that was a quality that was so prominent in Stephen's life. And because of these qualities, he, he makes some pretty substantial enemies, enemies in high places. So they they bring Stephen to trial. And all this probably sounds a little familiar to you, because when you read through this, you're going to find that it's very similar to the things they did to Jesus. So they bring him to trial and at his trial, he gives this sermon about how God worked through the people of Israel all through history. And he concludes his message by telling them about Jesus, saying to these religious people, he said that they were they were the ones that put God's chosen Messiah to death. Now, now, if you're being accused of something like this, this would get your attention. 
And this obviously provoked these people and made them angry, angry enough that they killed, they martyred Stephen. Now, they tell you in Bible school, and when I was in Bible school, they would say the same thing. When you, you preach, make sure that you conclude your message with something that people remember. Well, Stephen had no problem doing that. Uh, the people really remembered this one. Uh, this, this was something caught in their craw. This was something that made them very, very angry. I mean, he ended with something that, that rung their bell. And his words made these people so angry that they dragged him into the streets. And there's something that you see very significant here. They drag him into the streets. You know when you know you're pretty much toast or you're done? It's when they start to drag you out of town because by Jewish law, you could not do what they were about to do to Stephen in the city, in the town. So they took him outside of the town, outside of the city, the same way they treated Jesus. And they carried out their dastardly, dirty deed outside of the city gates. What did they do? The Bible says that they stoned him. They stoned him to death. I think one of the most poignant descriptions of what was going on is found in verse 54. I I don't know if you've thought about this description or the way this is stated much, but it says, and when they heard these things, they were cut to their heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Many commentators, when they come to that place, that verse right there, verse 54, they say what was happening is they just ganged up on him and many of them probably even bit him. They were so mad. They were so angry. We have described it sometimes cleaned up and sterilized that he, they just kind of gnashed their teeth. They, they probably did a lot more than that. These people are infuriated with what, what Stephen had just said. And so they're going to take care of business here. Now, today in America, and I want, I want to make sure that we understand something clearly in this message today. It's, it's, a, it's important that we understand this. And I'm, I'm so thankful. I'm thankful that in most places in the world... Uh, it's difficult for us to imagine this level of persecution. Uh, from time to time, we do hear people that raise the flag of alarm and they tell us how bad it's getting in America. And I, I have no doubt, uh, you can see, that, that it's not getting any better. But how persecution has really began to set in, that's what some of these people are saying. And they usually have to stretch a little bit to make their case. And in one case, for example, a church having difficulty with a a zoning permit said that they were being persecuted by the city council. You know, this type of overstatement, and I'm going to say it, and I'm just going to be bold and say it, this type of overstatement really diminishes the plight of those in foreign countries that are truly being persecuted. Can Can I say that? We need to be careful with how we draw lines and how we define and how we describe things. Now, I'm not saying that the day we're living in is a, a flowery, flowery Christian era that we're in. I'm not saying that. I, I, I think I know what we're facing, and it's, it's going to get worse. The Bible says that it's going, to, it's going to get a lot worse. But to throw ourselves in with these people, other people who have lost their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no comparison. Ten years ago, I went to Sri Lanka And I realized after I'd been there for about five or six days that many had made their journey during time of great civil war. They had made their journey from the north of Sri Lanka to the south. And some of them had lost their lives just getting there. Because the extremists found out what they were doing and what they were up to and they murdered them. And who were they coming to hear? What what were they coming to see? What were they coming to be part of? They were coming to, to be encouraged by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were willing to risk their life to do that. 
that to me is a lot different than someone who doesn't get a building permit because they think they're being persecuted. I think we need to hold, and I think we do, but I want to remind us, we need to hold people who have lost their life for really, truly the sake of the gospel in, in high esteem. There are people that are losing their life, the threat of death. They're forced to worship underground. Those in prison, and those are tossed in prison. Many people are merely put in prison because they have a Bible. This is real persecution, and there have always been Christians who have suffered this way. And our minor inconveniences are nothing compared to the price that many in the church today have had to pay over the years. And we need to continue to pray for the martyr church. We need to continue to pray. These are real people. These are people that I've actually touched and I've spent time with and I've, I've listened to their stories. These aren't just things that you just hear about third and fourth hand. These are real people with real families, real feelings. And we need to, we need to pray for them. We need to keep them in our hearts. There's no doubt in my mind that we're in a society that has become much more non-Christian. This should be cause for concern, but our concern should be directed. Listen to this. I think our concern should be directed more inward than outward. Now, here's what I mean. Instead of demanding that society change to serve us, we need to ask ourselves, what can we do to better serve society? Instead of demanding that all these other things change, we should probably take a good look at our own lives, our own circumstances, our own hearts and say, what is it we need to do to change, to serve the world that we live in? What can we do to make this world, this country, the community that I live in a better place? What can we do to have more influence to better impact the world around us? You know, that's why our theme has been touchable Jesus, touchable church. That's why we've taken that very seriously. That's why we've chosen the book of Acts. This book teaches us things about the early church that really made a difference in their world. And I'm positive if we emulate, if we take to heart what is being said, we'll change the world we live in as well. And here's what we've discovered. Some things that we've discovered about the early church in the first six chapters. And it probably is good that we pause just for a moment and say, what have we figured out or what have we learned that we can model, that we can emulate concerning the early church and our connection with them, according to the book of Acts. And the first is this. The first is their mindset. That really had to be established right away, right up front. And God was faithful. We see it. We read about it. It, it happened. If we want to influence our world, we need to be immersed. We need to be saturated. We need to be full of the Holy Spirit. God made sure that took place. And what he did, the first thing he did, is he established their mindset. He had given them a compass. He had told them what to do and where they were going to go. And he had given them the power to fill that. And secondly, we discover the message of the early church. You see it progress here? Early on in the very first chapter, first chapter and a half, there's a mindset that's established. And then we start to hear this message that resonates through the communities that they became part of, communities that they influenced. And the message of the early church is about Jesus Christ. It's about salvation through him. It's about God's promises are for all generations. That's the message. Did you know the Bible has almost 7,500 promises in it for you and for me? 
7,500. What are the ones that you're holding on to now? What are the ones that are real in your life today? Because you can be sure of this. If God said it, it's going to happen. It will take place. He needs faithful, obedient servants to follow through. That's the message. The message is salvation. The message here is Jesus Christ. And it's the promises that he's given to all generations. And then thirdly is the church's methods. These people were committed to certain things. And you read this in Acts chapter 4, the latter part. What were they committed to? Last time I spoke, we talked about this. Well, they were committed to a few things. Number one, they were committed to God's word. To know what God was saying. To hear what God was saying and being obedient to that. And then they were committed to fellowship, being with each other and how important they understood that to be. And then they were committed to worship God with all of their heart together in one accord. And then they were committed to pray. These were the methods that God had forged out in this early church, in this early community. And I called them, I think we called them the four pillars of the early church. The word of God. Once again, let me say it. The word of God. Fellowship. Worship together and prayer. And today what I want to do is I want to take a little time with you. And it's not going to take a lot of time, but just a little time to talk about the mission of the early church. And the mission is pretty simple. And I'll, I'll state it in, in, in one phrase. We want to help people experience abundant and eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's what we want to do. And I think that was clearly the mission of the early church. Everything about the early church had to do with this particular kind of mission. The strategy is not a political strategy. It's not a political strategy. It wasn't a political strategy then. It's not a political strategy now. It's not an economical strategy. It is a spiritual one. And because it's spiritual, it works everywhere. And I don't want that to get by you. What God has for the mission of his people, it works everywhere around the world. This mission doesn't just work in the suburbs of America. It works in the towns of Albania. It works in the villages of Rwanda. It works in the streets of Thailand. Anyone, anywhere can experience the fullness of Jesus Christ in their lives. The mission is changing the world by changing lives. The mission and our message hasn't changed. And I want you to see this. I really want you to, 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 to have this validated in your heart, in your mind, in your studies. The mission and message have not changed. Notice in Acts chapter 2, the theme of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost is that Jesus Christ has risen and he's the Lord of all. In Acts chapter 3, Peter steps up and he preaches again. And, and G, here, here it is, the, the, the message, the theme is Jesus Christ is risen and he's Lord of all. And then in Acts chapter 4, we read that Peter and John were arrested. What were they arrested for? The reason they were arrested, we, they were preaching Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And in Acts Chapters 6 and 7 in Stephen's sermon, he gives us the history of Israel and he concludes that Jesus Christ has risen. I know we reserve this primarily for Easter weekend, but I think it's probably good for us to say that. Can you say he's risen, he's risen. and he's risen indeed? He's risen. Yeah, it's good to say that. Because this is how the early church is forged out. This is their mission. This was the, the, the centerpiece of their message. 
I need to keep that in mind. I want you to keep that in mind. Our message and mission needs to be the same as theirs. The message is to keep Jesus Christ the main thing. And the mission is to help people experience his resurrected power. And can I tell you one of the best ways that's fulfilled? See, sometimes we start thinking, well, I I, I really need to go and, and learn to be a, a, a pastor. I, I really need to go study and do this or do that. And I think all of that's good. And I think we do need to study the Word of God. But I'll tell you, the most effective tool that you have in your arsenal is your story. It's the story that God has given you and how Jesus touched your life, how He changed your life. And the Bible says, it says, we'll overcome by the word of our testimony, the blood of the Lamb. About three or four nights ago, uh, Annette woke up praying for our daughter, Rebecca, who's going to be leaving to, to, uh, to an internship in our Foursquare Church in Hilo, Hawaii, in a couple of weeks. And she was so encouraged to, to sit down and tell Becca, Becca, what you need to make sure you do is tell your story. Because when you tell your story, there's power in your story. There's a message there and people will see the mission of God when you tell your story. And I'm going to say this to everyone in this room. Don't be intimidated. Don't shy away from telling your story. If the opportunity presents itself, if the door opens, even if it has a just a little glance at light that you can run to or run through, tell your story. Because it's your story that people want to hear about. It's your story that people are watching. They're paying attention to. It's how Jesus has changed your life. Your story has more power in it than you think it does. Tell your story. We read the latter part of chapter 7, Stephen's sermon. And now what I want to do is make some observations that I think will help us discover more about the touchable Jesus, touchable church. First of all is this, let's look at, at the message of Stephen because Stephen ended his sermon with some pretty harsh words. And we can look at that again. I'm going to read you the, the verses where, where he, he finished by saying some things here. I'm going to go up a few verses in verse 51. He says to these people, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did and so do you. I mean, that, that, that he's getting his point across here. Sounds pretty harsh. Maybe harsh is really an understatement. But it's amazing. It's interesting to me because Peter's sermon, and you can compare the two, but Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 was hard-hitting as well. Acts 2.36, Peter says this. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured, be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then it's repeated again, again and again. Peter has some difficult things to say in Acts 3.15. He says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. In Acts 4.10, know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Speaking of the healing of the paralytic. And in Acts 6 and 7, Stephen continued this message. He says, you are responsible for his death, God's chosen Messiah. These are harsh words. These are tough words to swallow. I want you to keep in mind something as you hear these words uh, resounding over and over in your mind, your head, when you read this passage of Scripture. I want you to keep this in mind. 
that there were certain listeners here. There was a group of listeners you need to be aware of. Both Peter and Stephen were speaking to their own people. These are their own brothers. This is kind of like talking to your fellow members at church. This wasn't a message to the outside group. This wasn't a message to the world. This wasn't a message to the Gentiles. This was a message to their own people. Remember when these sermons were given, it wasn't clear that Christianity would become a separate religion. You have to take in context what was going on here. The apostles considered their message to be the next step in Judaism. They saw just something unfolding here. The pieces started to fit together. They didn't see this something being separate right at this time. So when Peter and Stephen spoke these words, they were speaking to their own brothers. They weren't attacking those on the outside. They weren't speaking about the sinlessness of the Gentiles or others. They were speaking against the hard hearts of their own people and to their people. So what's the application? The application here to me is maybe we should reserve some of the strongest judgments that we have for ourselves. Instead of ripping on the world. Maybe what God wants to say when he speaks to us, he wants to say that to us. I have to consider that. I have to be open to that. What's interesting to me is the comparison you can't help make again between Peter's sermon and Stephen's sermon. It's the same message, but a different response. Another lesson learned here. The same message, kind of the same tone with two different responses. We need to remember that just because the message doesn't get the desired response, we don't need to change the message. And I think in some places and in some ways, we've been at peril in doing so. Well, this isn't the response we want, so maybe what we need to do is change the message. No. Our responsibility is to bring the message. The response is, is left up to God. It's in God's hands. The message is the same while the methods may have changed over centuries. We all know that. We can all say for sure that's what's happened. There's different music today. There's different ways of worshiping. There's different styles. But here it is. It's our our four square anthem, our, our key verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the message. And here's something else to keep in mind. I, I think I want to remember this when I go about my business and in, in, in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that is, there will always be Saul's in the crowd. That's the other thing that I pick up when I read this story. In verse 58, it says, And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul, who was later named Paul, the apostle, the champion of faith, the one who wrote so much of the New Testament, he was there that day. He was in the crowd checking hats and coats and he was watching Stephen being put to death. No one, I don't think anyone would have guessed that this young man had the potential that he did. 
In fact, as time went on, this young man developed such a reputation. People didn't want, especially people in the church, didn't want to have anything to do with him. And if it weren't for a man named Barnabas who could see through all of this that brought him in and introduced him to the church of Jerusalem, who knows where he would have been? He was so hated and feared. And every reason to be hated and feared. No one would have guessed that this young man had the potential he did. To them, he was just another really, really bad guy. And you can read about that in Acts chapters 8 and 9. But here's the point. The point is, you never know. You never know. Now, this is why I get a little concerned Because we can speak so poorly of certain non-Christians that we have virtually alienated them in our conversations in such a way as how can we then become bridges for them to come to Jesus? It's pretty hard. I just think the warning, the caution there is to be very, very careful what we say even about the most heathen of people, at least in our own opinion, the way they they live their life and what they do. I think our obligation is very clear. Our obligation is to pray. Our obligation is to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Some of you may think this sounds silly, but about 20 years ago, the Lord laid someone on my heart. It's going to sound weird to you. But I prayed for this person. I know it's God because... This keeps reoccurring. You know who I pray for on a regular basis? And of all people, you would think, now that guy is a non-Christian if there is any, if there's such a thing as a non-Christian, this is a non-Christian. I pray for Ozzy Osbourne all the time. I mean, who would think you want to pray for a guy who, you know, the lead singer in Black Sabbath? I mean, Black Sabbath. And I can't help it. And I'm thinking, I've told him that. I, every time, if, he, if, if some reason he flashes up, I said, man, I pray for that guy all the time. I know that may be an extreme, but that's what I think we're talking about here, is who are we praying for that may be the most unlikely person in the whole world according to your grid? Don't be surprised. If those are the people that come to saving grace in Jesus Christ, don't ever be surprised. We need to remember that many of us used to be one of them. And many of them may eventually become one of us. I told you a little story about getting a call from someone who lived in Sisters and they were at a going away party for somebody and they happened to sit next to a fellow that was my next door neighbor uh, when I was seven years old till the time I think I was 15. I received the Lord in his mother's living room at a Good News Bible Club. And, and I didn't get all the whole story because time was short, but I saw this guy again about a week or so ago and I said, hey, tell me more about that conversation you had with John. And I said, I haven't seen him in 35 years. I mean, I don't even, there's no, we, we didn't, we didn't really have a, a friendship uh, only in grade school, but I haven't seen him. And he said, well, he was really, really surprised at what you do now. And I said, I bet he was. 
I said, what do you think he, what, what, what did he think I'd be doing? He said, running into fires or playing baseball or something like that. He said, I don't think he ever thought that you would be preaching. And I said, well, either did I. And I think a lot of people think that about a lot of people. But God's grace is so amazing and wonderful. You know why? Jesus came to redeem the bad guys. And there's no one really off limits. That's why he came. He came to seek and save those who are lost. It's in his, it's, it's, it's in his banner. It, it, it's on what he advertises. He advertises that. Why are you here, Jesus? To seek and save those who are lost. And bad guys are lost. And that's who he came for. Now what I want you to do is listen to verse 60 here. It says this about Stephen. Then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he had fallen asleep. This is a curious statement to me. I mean, it's one that immediately you recognize someone else had stated. He was repeating this. He was repeating the same statement Jesus made. But I thought, you know, he really doesn't have the authority to do that because that's God's business. He's the one who's going to judge all this. But you know what I think is happening here? I, I think this is being done that Stephen had the whereabouts full of the Holy Spirit to model something for all of us. Again, right away you know who Stephen is modeling. He's modeling Jesus. And I also think that Stephen's words were spoken for the benefit of the church. Because God knew that all through our history, we're going to have times where the, 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 the greatest virtue that we can possess in our lives is the spirit of forgiveness. And he's saying, what an opportune time for the first martyr of the church to be able to say this, to model Jesus Christ, because people are going to repeat this time and time again. The first guy is going to be repeated. People are going to pay attention to what's going on here. And so what does he do? He says, really, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Don't bring this to their charge. Even though Stephen's words were hard and truthful, and it resulted in his death. His dying words were full of mercy. Isn't that amazing? His final message was a message of forgiveness and reconciliation. And this is what I would say. Always extend a hand of reconciliation. You know, we, we must, and I, I know this, we must always stand for truth. But to some, I'm afraid that means... We can't show mercy because somehow mercy dilutes the truth. That's not true. I hope you know that. It's not true at all. And I look at this and whenever I talk to people about relationship, I tell them this. I think the greatest virtue that anyone can have in relationship is to have the spirit of forgiveness to always offer a hand of reconciliation. That. That is the greatest virtue that anyone can, can have. Because what it says is there's always a way. What it communicates is there's always hope. What it tells us is that the grace of God is abundant. That's what it tells us. 
And we're the ones that are living that out. We're the ones that have been called on to reflect that love and forgiveness, the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you some things that I think are barriers to reconciliation, to forgiveness? Just some maybe simple, obvious things, but let me tell you what I think they are. Number one is we think that when we have friends that are unsaved, we're somehow compromising. You know, I, I, I've, I've heard people say that. You know, I've, I, I, I talked to someone not too long ago and they were saying that they had been invited to a gathering, a party, and that their, their, that some of their gay relatives were going to be there and they didn't know whether they should go or not and they wanted to know what I thought and I said, by all means, go. I said, I don't know of any greater power than the power of love. Show up. You may be the only light they see for a while. Show the light. Shine the light. Don't hide it under a bushel. Don't hide it under a bowl. Shine it. Under all circumstances, in every way, in all relationships, shine the light. You're not going to mess anybody up. You're not diluting anything. You're not compromising anything. Shine the light. Secondly, another barrier is when we live in arrogance and not humility. And I'm going to say this, and it may not even come out in the, I don't know, it may not even be so overt as sometimes I think it's covert. And we just have this subtle idea that we know more than other people. That we are the smartest people in the room when it comes to, you know, things of theology and religion. I know, I know people like that and I hope I'm not one of those people. But I want to operate and I want to live my life in humility. So that people have someone they can hold on to. They have something they can embrace that represents to them Jesus Christ. Another barrier to reconciliation is when we feel like we always must defend God. The news flashes, God is a lot bigger than us. You know, Um, I think there are times, certainly, that we have to have our ducks lined up. We have to give an account. But to always feel like you have to draw your sword. Who wants to hang out with somebody who you're always getting cut by? And who wants to be with somebody who's prickly all the time? I mean, does that make sense? Ready to, you know, throw their sword out, man. You, 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 You cut too many things up and too many people up when you do that. I think it's best just to... To, to, to live in a way that people, when they look at your life, they're just saying, you know, this person's pretty confident in who they are and who their God is. I think it's one of the greatest testimonies. And honestly, God doesn't need you to defend him. Bottom line. What he needs is he needs people who will follow him. And I want to be a person like that, and I know you do as well. And that's why we come to the Lord's table. We come to the Lord's table because it's here in, in my in my understanding of things that represents probably more than anything we do in the body of Christ that represents forgiveness that Jesus forgave us. And, and, and he's mended our relationship with God. And now we have the ability, the possibility and the ability to mend relationships with others because of the body and blood of Jesus Christ.
I'm going to ask right now that you just bow your head and I'm going to pray and have our hearts just... Would you just bow your head and just begin to pray uh, and prepare your heart for worship and coming to the Lord's table in just a moment? I'll give you instruction. We're not going to leave you without that. But let, let's do this right now. Father, we just um, we just prepare our hearts to come to this place. And what we've heard about today, what we've had modeled for us is uh, a man who was full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. He spoke truth. And his last words were full of mercy. And he extended such wonderful forgiveness. Father, let us be people who live life in such a way. Live life in our homes that way. Live life in our church, our community that way. Lord, we want to thank you for your forgiveness in our lives. That you've forgiven us of our sins through your life, your death, your resurrection. And we acknowledge that today. We remember that today. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we do. We remember that. We thank you for that. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. It's in your name that we come to this table today. In Jesus' name we pray and we say amen. Let me read you what the words of the Apostle Paul are to us. Remember the fellow who took the hats and coats of those that martyred Stephen. His life changed. He became such a wonderful ambassador for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he took, he took this time, this moment seriously. And he wrote to the church of Corinth these words. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also passed or delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when you come to the table today, you're remembering the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's represented in the cup that you're going to drink in just a moment. That it's the blood of Jesus that has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. The Bible tells us that. It makes it very clear. When you take the bread, you're going to be reminded that bread represents the broken body of Jesus Christ. And it's the broken body of Jesus Christ that made a way for us to have a relationship with God. If you remember the story, the moment of the death of Jesus, the veil was rent, the curtain that stood between God and us was torn. As his body was torn, that that curtain was torn. And what it was saying is, come, whoever will come, let them come and receive freely from Jesus Christ. And today we've been given the privilege to do that. And when you come, bring a few things with you. First of all, Bring yourself. Romans 12, 1 says, present yourself to the Lord as a living and holy sacrifice. That you would do that. We also want you to bring your prayer requests, your praise reports. You have those in the seat pockets in front of you. And if you want to write a few things down or uh, tell us how we can pray for each other, you go ahead and do that and put those in the containers that are on the table. The other thing we do for those that call 
New Life, their church home, we bring our tithe and offering. It's that one time a month where we actually are proactive in bringing a worship gift, a, a tangible gift to the Lord. And you can place that in the containers as well. But we do all this in the name of the Lord. We provided a table here. There are two tables in the back as well. Uh, what we want to do is we want to share in the Lord's table together. And we do this together. If you're new with us, then just the community will teach you. There's no uh, rules that you have to abide by. You just, in the sense of coming to the table, you come to the table. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you come to the table. You take the cup. You take the bread. Take it together. And do this in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together again. Father, we just thank you for these moments that we are sharing together and that we're going to continue to share together around your table. We just thank you for what you've done for us and the way that you've made for us. Uh, Today, we give you all the honor. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of us say together, amen and amen. As we continue to worship, you just come at your leisure to the table and we'll continue to worship the Lord. When I survey the wondrous cross On which the Prince of Glory died And my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Oh, the me come and die and find that I may truly live. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. All who gather here by grace drawn near and bless your name. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. And such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich how You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. 
please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.